Um, today, as, as you can tell, that we don't have our regular leader, Rob, with us today, but we have a guest speaker. And uh, thank you for all of you that have participated this morning in making this service great. Um, but today we have Paul Walterman uh, up from beautiful downtown Apple Valley. And uh, he's, he's come to get out of the coolness uh, of the desert and <laughs> come up to wonderful hot Big Bear. So um, Paul and I talked a little bit about uh, how to introduce him. And uh, he said, just tell him it's an old guy that's keeping going. And, and I go, yes, I can believe that. And I can relate with that. So uh, here is Mr. Paul. Good morning. Good morning. All situated here, get right in the middle so I don't get lopsided. How's that? Business first, not black eyes. They are black eyes, but nobody hit me. I just had some eye surgery on Wednesday, so what you see is a residual part of that, and uh, my wife and I are getting along fine. <laughs> Everything is just... <laughs> Yeah, yep. <laughs> it's good to be here. <clears throat> good to be here. God's good, amen? Amen. You sang like you believe that. You look like you believe it. And so I believe that you believe it. So that's good. How many of you believe that God has something he would like to share with us this morning? Hmm? Okay, that's one of the reasons we come to church, isn't it? <clears throat> there are three components in that. The Holy Spirit's got to do something in that whole equation, right? He's got to get it to us, and he's always faithful to do that. We don't have to worry about him. He's always Johnny on the spot. <clears throat> I'm the second component in that, and I've got to deliver what I feel he's shared with me. And there's a lot of, in the years that I've been preaching, I realize that it's not important for you to hear me when I speak, but it's very important for you to hear God when I speak, okay? Because I can mess it up. I can get something from God and go on a tangent someplace along the line or do something wrong or say the wrong thing or whatever and mess it up. So I've got to commit myself to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. There's a third component. What would that be? You. <laughs> you have to have receptive hearts. You want to hear from God. Because it's very possible to sit in church like this. Nobody sees us do it. We're not wearing those big commercial you know, uh, noise-canceling earphones, but there's a way we can do that to where God speaks and we go away. We didn't hear a word he said. And wouldn't that be a tragic thing for us and God to be in the same room for an hour and a half or two hours, two and a half, three hours. I'm going to scare some of you. Really. <laughs> for us to be together for a length of time and us not hear anything he said? be horrible. So let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning that you've given us a hope that defies description. You're an amazing God. We're a very, very fortunate people. And so we dedicate this time to you. We pray that the Holy Spirit has access to our hearts, <clears throat> unstops our ears, gives us wisdom to be able to understand, helps us to see the application of your word. And uh, so we commit this to you. I commit the words that I say to you and ask that you do something that will extend your kingdom in our lives and through us to other people. And toward that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. <clears throat> I was um, doing some reading in the book of Isaiah, and it's very interesting because God, God put some headlines, if you will. God publisher and uh, Isaiah was the newspaper man or whatever. God put some things together that as I read them, the first several chapters of Isaiah, I realized these, were, these could have been written in any one of our national newspapers in the last six months. And I'm just going to share a couple of them with you, and I want you to see if you see any comparisons at all. This is written 2,700 years ago, okay, by a man named Isaiah who was a prophet of God who served under four different kings and had a rough go of it because you'll understand that when you realize the condition that, the, that his culture was in. From chapter 1, just listen. The children I raised, this is God saying this now, the children I raised and cared for so long and tenderly have turned against me. Even the animals, donkeys and the ox know their owner and appreciate his care for them, but not my people, Israel. No matter what I do for them, they still don't care. A little bit later, it says, They were born to be bad. They have turned their backs upon the Lord and have despised the Holy One. Verse 7, Your country lies in ruins. Your cities are burned while you watch. Foreigners are destroying and plundering everything they see. Verse 23, Your leaders are rebels, companions of thieves. All of them take bribes and don't defend the widows and orphans. Chapter 2, The Lord has rejected you because you welcome foreigners from the east. This is very interesting here. You welcome foreigners from the East who practice magic and communicate with evil spirits. Let me tell you a story that happened a long time before most of us were around. There was a, a lady in charge of the Theophysical Society of North America. Her name was Annie Besant. She was an elderly lady when this story first begins. And she is on the lookout for the theosophy was basically welcoming the new leader who would bring in the Messiah, Lord, what was his name, Maitreya, and he was going to be the world teacher for the age of Aquarius. Now, this is back in the 1920s. She found a young boy from India who was just a young man, and there was something about him that captivated her. His name was Jiddu Krishnamurti. He was spellbinding. There was an aura about him that those who practiced that art said he just has this beautiful spirit about him. And she thought, this is the guy that's going to usher in the age of Aquarius. And so she began to tutor him, basically adopted him, brought him over to America. I mean, he had the ability over in India, they said, to get in front of a crowd of thousands of people and speak. And it was like his voice was a trumpet and people were absolutely spellbound. And just like, I mean, this was the next level below God. She set up a, about a 56-city tour in the United States, and she, she was so excited to bring Jiddu Krishnamurti over him and introduce him and let him inaugurate this new beginning of Eastern religion that was going to sweep over our country. They got on a boat, and he had, they, there were people on the boat that were traveling with them that were newspaper men and journalists and so forth, and they were interviewing him. Everybody was in awe of this young man. He was probably 20, 21 at the time. When they got close to New York City, they, they docked outside of the city several miles out before they docked in the morning. And he began to have trouble thinking clearly, Jiddu Krishnamurti. I mean, this guy who was just fluid all over the place in India was having trouble here. They got off the boat, and, in, and he was being interviewed by people who hadn't been on the boat, who had heard about his coming and were all excited. He couldn't put words together to make any sense. He was confused. He didn't understand what was going on. I think they made it to three or four of their city tour out of 56, and they gave it up. He went back to India. You know why? 
because this was a land that looked to the Lord for our protection. There was a barrier around our country. A nation that loves and serves God has divine protection around it. Now, forward 60-something years, I'm in a hotel in San Francisco, channel surfing, come across a, a public radio or public television station, and they're interviewing this elderly Indian man who had a strong ministry in the United States, and it was Jiddu Krishnamurti, 60-something years later. So when God says, the Lord rejected you because you welcome foreigners who practice magic and communicate with evil spirits, that's like it, he wrote it in the 60s here in the United States. Remember the flower kids singing, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius? Beautiful song, but scary message. Whoa, whoa. Chapter 6. Woe to those who drag their sins behind them like a bullock on a rope. They say that what is right is wrong. Wow. And what is wrong is right. That black is white and white is black. Bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. Any of you seen any of that going on? Huh? Like Tony Campola said in one of his books he wrote, he said, who switched the price tags? You know? You destroy an egg of an eagle and they charge you. The government will fine you $5,000, but they'll help pay for the destruction of a baby in the womb. It's like, what? How did we get here? What's going on? Chapter 59. For your hands are those of murderers and your fingers are filthy with sin. You lie and grumble and oppose the good. No one cares about being fair and true. Our courts oppose the righteous man. Fairness is unknown. Truth falls dead in the streets. And justice is outlawed. Wow. It was true for that day, but it's true for our day as well. Yes, truth is gone. This is the last one. Here's, God, here's God's heart now. Truth is gone. Anyone who tries a better life is soon attacked. The Lord saw all the evil and was displeased to find no steps taken against sin. He saw no one. Here's my message going to hinge on this next phrase. He saw no one was helping you and wondered that no one intervened. Now that Hebrew word for intervene is a word that is interpreted in the New Testament as interceded. Okay? God was amazed that this was going on and no one stood to intercede on behalf of righteousness. Now that's the atmosphere in which Isaiah lived. Now here's his calling from God and you're, you're familiar with this. It's just an amazing thing. He said, the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, things are looking better already, okay? Yeah. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the temple was filled with his glory. I wish, I wish we had a picture of this. I really do. I really do. Hovering about him were mighty six-winged angels of fire. With two of their wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. In a great antiphonal chorus, they sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Such singing it was, he said. It shook the temple to its foundation, and suddenly the entire sanctuary was filled with smoke. Have you ever been in the presence of the Lord where it was so strong that you couldn't do anything except weep or laugh or go into utter, absolute silence? before the Lord. You were overcome with the realization of God's love and his holiness and his mercy and his omniscience 
and this knowledge of his proximity to you and his majesty. Now multiply that times maybe a thousand or two thousand or three thousand. You begin to get an, in, an idea of what Isaiah experienced as he was taken into the throne room of Almighty God and witnessed his glory and his holiness. Okay, are you with me? Okay, because this is an important point. That holiness contrasted so desperately with the world he lived in. He had just seen God, but he was part of a filthy environment. He lived in a world that had gone crazy. So here's God and his holiness, and here's his culture. And he's kind of between a rock and a hard place, between the two of them. And he says, my doom is sealed, for I am a foul-mouthed sinner. It's interesting. You can be a Christian for a long time, but you still need to identify with the fact that you're a sinner, right? Yeah, don't ever get so far down the road that you forget who you could be without the Lord's help at any moment of the day, okay? I'm a foul-mouthed sinner, a member of a sinful, foul-mouthed race, and I have looked upon the king. What do you do? What do you do when you see people's lives being ruined and wrecked by stupid decisions? And, and it goes all the way up and down the political spectrum. It goes all the way up and down the economic spectrum. It goes across race. It goes everywhere. We live in a bad, terrible place, and God sees it. And he said, I saw the Lord. Same thing happened to Peter when the Lord directed him to throw out the net again after they'd fished all night and, and the tremendous catch that they received had to call out another boat to help them to keep from sinking. And what did Peter say immediately? He said, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus, Jesus and he said, oh Lord, please leave me. I am too much of a sinner to be around you. So that's our dilemma this morning. We've seen the king. We know what it's like out there. We like to come in here, <laughs> but we know we got to go back out there. And so we're filled with awe at God's presence. We sang about it this morning and reveled in it. We know what it feels like to be in his presence, to be immersed in his presence, and yet filled with loathing and embarrassment at the world we live in. So here comes his call to ministry. Then one of the mighty angels flew over the altar with a pair of tongs and picked out a burning coal. He touched my lips with it and said, Now you are pronounced not guilty because this coal has touched your lips. Your sins are all forgiven. Redemption. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to my people, those out there? Who should I send? Somebody, I'm, I'm amazed nobody has gone before. Who should I send? Remember Isaiah's response? Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. I'll take the job. So this morning I want to share with you how to get out of church. It has more to do with those double doors and this single door here. Okay? I'm not talking about getting out of the big C church. There, there are two churches. There's a big C church, which all of us are members of. Anybody who loves Jesus, regardless of how they worship, where they live, anything about them, if you love Jesus, you're part of the big C church, right? There's a small C church. That's where we come to fellowship, the big C church comes to fellowship in the little C church. This building has little to do with the real church of Jesus Christ other than giving us a place where we can fellowship together. So we're going to be leaving out of here 
And I'm not talking about leaving and never coming back either. This building, the small C church, because the fellowship that we have is important to us. Amen? Yeah, we need it. We need it. Sundays don't come often enough, and it's not just because they're part of the weekend. Sundays don't come often enough. We need the fellowship. We need what happens here to us. So strangling the result of the dichotomy sometimes between what is sacred and what is, what is uh, secular can really hurt us as a church. The dichotomy. What is sacred and what is secular? Well, being here is sacred, right? Teaching a Sunday school class, being in a small group is singing. Maybe the singing in the, in the Messiah sing-along would be part sacred, part secular. We don't know. But all the rest of the stuff we do is secular. No, 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 no. To a Christian, a born-again believer in Jesus, there is no distinction. There are no two columns in our lives. Okay? Everything we do is to be done unto the Lord, and everything is sacred. If you're washing your car, if you're at work, if you're shopping in the groceries, if you're at school, if you're on the job, whatever you do, you are an all-the-time ambassador for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's what hurts us, because we step out of the role of sacred sometimes, and through the week, we live very secularly. And when we do that, the gospel loses its impact in the lives of people it is supposed to be affecting. Because they look at us, they don't see us here. They don't see you with your hands up. They don't hear you singing gospel courses and songs. They just see you at work. They just see you in the marketplace. And if you're living different there than you are in here, then the gospel has just lost its flavor. The salt is gone. There's nothing in their lives to say, wow, that's amazing. How are you like that? Why are you like that? It takes the energy out of the gospel. It's not just about the activities in our lives, but it's about the mindset of our hearts. What do you get up in the morning to do? Make a living? It's got to be more than that. Okay? You're, an, you're an ambassador of another kingdom. You're living in this kingdom, but you're an ambassador. You're a representative of an entirely different kingdom with different rules, different ways of looking at things. As you, Norm, were talking about the offering, the way the world looks at money and the way the Christian looks at money should be absolutely diametrically opposed to each other. Okay? And it goes across the board. Now, I'm going to help you leave church this morning, and I'm almost, I'm, I'm about half, I think I'm halfway done. We'll see. <laughs> I may have to renegotiate with you after a little bit, but I think we're doing okay. How many of you have ever traveled and remember the arrival speech that the flight attendant gives? Yeah. Want to be the first to welcome you to Indianapolis? Local time here is about 2.20 in the afternoon. Captain has requested that you stay in your seat with your seatbelt fastened until he has safely gotten us to the gate, and you can get up and look around you at that point. Well, let me change that a little bit this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us today at Big Bear Christian Center. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened until our speaker has taxied us to the end of the service, and the seatbelt sign has been turned off and the doxology has been given. At that time, please look around you and gather all your belongings, especially your faith, which might have shifted during the service. Ideally, it will be stronger and therefore more strategic for the week you're facing. That's my major point this morning, is that when you leave church, ever, or leave the Lord's presence, your own devotional time, whatever, be sure you take your faith with you. <laughs> now, your faith is important. It's what got you here this morning. 
Some of you came by it from a family, family uh, genealogy that faith was an important part of decades and generations before you. Some of you, it's a recently acquired thing, but your faith is what got and ends your confidence in God. Your faith has been, has been tempered by the fact that you have learned that God is always faithful. Have you ever told somebody that? God has been faithful to me. You know, there have been ups and downs, but God has always been faithful. He's never let me down. That's part of your faith package that you have. Faith results in, grow, in a grow, growing awareness of God's love for you. Some of you came to God very timidly, and your whole thing was, I don't see how anybody could love me, let alone God. I mean, he's holy, you know, look at me, look at what I've done, blah, blah, blah. And it's taken a while for you to understand that God loves you, and nothing you can do can make him love you less than he does right now. Isn't that good news? Nothing you can do to make, will make him love you more, too. That's good news. There are a lot of people out there. We saw them this week walking with their tracks in their hands by twos, walking the streets in Apple Valley, trying to, trying to get God to love them more, you know? There are people in other lands that are beating themselves and doing all kinds of kneeling on glass, trying to get God to love them. You can't get God to love you more than he does. And that's part of your faith package as well. It lets you handle life's stresses and burdens, your faith in God. It gives you the ability to get from here through the next week, through the next month, through the next year. Okay? It's your faith in God. Minor case of me having a little bit of surgery this last Wednesday. I'd never had surgery in my life. I didn't know what it was like. See all the TV programs where the camera's on the, the bed being wheeled into the emergency room, you know, and see the lights going by. And I'd never experienced that. It was a little bit of a test of my faith. Am I going to believe God's going to be fine? I'm not going to come out weird or blind or something like that. So my faith gave me the ability to trust God. Okay? And faith prioritizes life and helps us realize that some of the stuff that we think is important really isn't. Faith does that. It's constantly looking through our belongings in our life. Say, you don't need that. Do a yard sale. Take it to the dump. Whatever. No, whatever. It helps us prioritize and keeps us strong in putting the right thing at the right place. But it's imperative as you leave this morning with your faith intact that you wrap it in your personal testimony. You can't go out this week and talk about Pastor Walterman's faith or your pastor's faith. It's got to be your faith. Okay? It's got to be wrapped in your words, in your life, your actions, your testimony. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. That's good news for some of you. Okay? If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you love to do cold turkey evangelism? Just go out knocking doors and tell people the four spiritual laws and so forth. I probably wouldn't get a lot of hands here. Most of us, that's not a real strong suit with us. And you know what? That's all right. As long as you know how to lead somebody in the sinner's prayer and are not afraid to say, would you like to accept Jesus? Okay, that's, that's fine. Whenever we teach evangelism in church, we were talking about this in our small group. We got our good friends, Jay and and Cheryl Ross from Lucerne, who were here this morning. I appreciate that so much. We talked about this in our small group here a few weeks ago. When we teach evangelism, typically we teach how to get somebody to admit they're a sinner and how to lead them in the sinner's prayer. We forget that evangelism starts way back. 
I'll give you an illustration here. They say that everyone who accepts Christ, on average, has had 14 positive influences of the gospel in their life. Okay? That's interesting. Because people start out way here at this end of the spectrum. They may believe in a supreme being, but they have no concept of the gospel whatsoever. But then you move a little bit this way, and now they've heard about the gospel. Somebody's invited them to church, something like this. You move another step this way, and all of a sudden there's a confrontation with the gospel, and they say, wow, okay, I, I see a little bit. And then pretty soon here, they begin making the implication, well, if I do this, it's going to mean this or whatever. I might have to. And here they come face to face with their need. I need somebody who can break the addictions in my life, who can love me. I need somebody like that. And finally, they get close to the number two, finally number one, and that's where they're led to the Lord. We, we maximize this part right here, the stepping over the line into salvation. We minimize our part in getting a person from eight to seven to six to five to four. And a lot of that happens without a whole lot of mouth, mouth things. First, you get somebody's attention. I was in a grocery store, gave a, gave a clerk a $10 bill for um, some $3 purchase, and I got $17 back. They, they thought I gave them a 20. And I said, wait a minute. I said, your, your drawer's going to be off tonight pretty bad. I said, you gave me too much money. Oh, I did? And then they get amazed. They go, why would you do that? I said, well, I love Jesus. If he was here, that's the way he would do it. You know, I don't want to disappoint him. He means too much to me. All right. What if I move the person from a five to a four there? See, it's all of us working together. We take the message and move into somebody's life. Do you know what? There are people that would give almost everything they own. Some would give everything they owned to have the faith that some of you have to have the confidence in God that some of you have. Joni's brother has claimed to be an atheist. I don't think he is really. I think he's more of an agnostic. I really think he would love to believe. I really think so. Because he will defend his point vehemently and at the end say, you know, you are so lucky to be able to believe like you do. There are people that would give anything for your confidence in Jesus. They would give anything. But you need to tell your story. You need to share your story. When you do something, the Bible says, let your good works be seen before men that they may what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't be afraid to throw some credit toward the Lord. Give him, give him the credit for a decision you make or something you did that was praiseworthy. Don't just say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm sweet. <laughs> no, I know. No, if you knew me, I wouldn't have reacted that way without the Lord in my life, right? Yeah. I wouldn't have overlooked that. I would have made a big deal out of it. But Jesus is in my life. If you look closely, you can see in the faces of people hopelessness. And you're a carrier of hope. You're a carrier of hope. You look around, you see desperation. You're a character. You're a person of great calm and peace that God's given you. They need that. They need that. We can watch the news at night. And the unsaved person can watch the news and come out of it having to take the next hour and a half trying to settle down so they can go to sleep. And the Christian watches the news and knows for sure that God's still in control and falls asleep quickly and easily. By the way, if you had trouble sleeping, you need to ask the Lord to help you. The scripture says he gives his, he gives his beloved rest. Okay? So whatever, if, if you poke around all night, or what, and I'm, this is off the point, but 
God wants us to rest. He wants us to be able to rest. The unbeliever is afraid of inflation, growing trade deficits, cost of gasoline, getting Ebola from a fast food hamburger, skyrocketing cost of sending their children to college, solar flares interrupting their cell phone usage, the newest wrinkle in their face, possible extinction of the hooping, hooping crane. Okay? I mean, there's no end of things you can be worried about. The believer, however, is assured that all things are going to work out well for those who love the Lord. We're assured of that. How do you know that? says so, and I've got, I've got 65 years of walking with the Lord behind me that verify that, okay? He doesn't have to say it a lot of times over and over again. He said it. I've been proving it. It's part of my testimony now, part of my testimony. I want to read you a devotional. I've been writing devotionals for about 11 years, and I put 365 in a book called Fresh Heart for a New Day. I just want to read this morning's because when I looked at it this morning, I thought, hmm, that would fit right there in my sermon. So this is called God in the Storm. The writer of Ecclesiastes makes it abundantly clear there are seasons in life. Some are just coming on stage, some are just exiting. Some are putting seeds into the ground, others are gathering the harvest. Some are crying while others are filled with happiness. For, for some it's time to speak up, others are to be quiet. There's a war for some and luxurious peace for others. If we were allowed to vote on which side of the ledger we'd rather live on, it would be an easy vote to cast and count. How about these choices? Young, life overflowing with joy, with enough for contentment, seeds in the ground with simultaneous harvest going on, nothing to cry about with peace internally and coming from every direction around us. But we don't get to choose. Or we can make choices that might mitigate the negative and emphasize the positive. However, we live in a wicked world where our own poor choices and the poor choices of others make living really difficult. We never seem to be able to eliminate the sad and difficult side of life, nor should we. For God is master at not only making something out of nothing, but of turning the terrifically terrible into mountainous mounds of blessing. What begins as a curse becomes a blessing, as in Joseph's experience. What his conniving brothers instituted as a low blow meant to cripple and destroy came back years later as the ultimate positive, not only in the life of their victim brother, but in their own lives as well. So remind yourself of this, God is God when the tide is in and the ship sits majestically in the harbor with flags flying with victory from the mast, but he's also God when the ship appears to be in mortal danger and we stand wiping the salt spray from our eyes as it mingles with the salt of our own tears as sadness as we plow through the storms unlike any we've experienced before. Wickedness and disaster, disillusionment and tears, crumpled dreams and shattered hope, God can orchestrate them all to produce breathtaking music. He can play the intended instruments of wickedness like a virtuoso. Whether the tide's in or out, either through tears or shining sunlight, good times or not so good times, let him be God. He's very good at it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. That's you, folks. That's you. So the believer looks at us and they say, how, do you, how, how are you so... How are you so peaceful? How can you sleep? How can you, you know, how, are you, how are you meeting your bills? I mean, they look at us and they scratch their head and they should. Because Peter said, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This is 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Okay? This, is a, this is another great help for evangelism to me. It's not always us having to ask the questions. 
See, when we're living the right life out there, people come to us with the questions. They can say, how is it that, how, what's, what, you know, they ask us, and he said, be ready to give an answer when somebody asks you. Expect an answer when you're living peace and joy and love and contentment and, and, and prosperity in, in, in the world that you live in. They're going to come to you and they're going to say, what, how do we do this? Be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. And then Peter says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Okay. We're going to get much further with the world if we don't beat them with our 13-pound Bibles. We can hold our standard. We can speak for truth, but we don't have to scream. There's a verse in the, in the New Testament or Old Testament where it talks about, God, about Jesus, the coming of Jesus, and said he won't put out a flickering flame, and he won't break a tender reed. Okay? Jesus was very easy, very, very easy on people that didn't know him and love him. The harshest things he ever had were for believers or for the religious, okay? But for those that didn't know, that didn't have hope, that were hurting, that were searching, he was gentle. He was gentle. And that's the, what God is asking us to do. So I want to pray with you before I, I close this morning and remind you that the faith you possess is not in you just to get you to heaven. But the faith you possess is in your life to help you take others with you. Okay? The faith you have has not only satisfied you, but will satisfy others if they're exposed to it themselves. And the faith in your life is not to be hoarded, but given away freely every single day. I'm going to pray for you and ask God <clears throat> that this becomes the most evangelistic church in Big Bear. You say, we don't have as many people. That doesn't make any difference. If we start doing this right, if we start letting the world know about Jesus in the right way, and our faith doesn't, we don't leave it here and pick it up next Sunday when you come back, but your faith is a part of every moment of every day, people will begin coming to Jesus. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. And I'm not thinking in numbers. I'm just thinking right now about broken people out there. Some of you are going to get an amazing opportunity in the next six days to sit down with somebody, to stand across a fence from somebody and let Jesus' love flow through you and change a heart. And you may see somebody move from a two to say, would you pray with me? I had it happen one time in my life where the Lord had been dealing with a young man and he called me on the phone. He said, I've been coming to the small group for a long time. He said, when I come this Wednesday, do you think it would be okay if I accepted Jesus? <laughs> I said, well, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> Not. See, that's what happens with the slow and steady, steady sharing of our lives with other people. Just like Abraham, you've been blessed to be a blessing. And you're needed in this area. God needs you desperately in this area. There are people who aren't going to make it through the next month if somebody doesn't tell them about Jesus in a real way. Not just a f on a paper reading, but through a life. So would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you this morning for <clears throat> getting to share your heart. And I thank you for these dear folks that have given their lives to you, have made that transition from death to life, from darkness to light. And I pray, Lord, that in the days to come, and let it start right away, 
I pray that we will put ourselves out for you. That we will put ourselves in positions and places and situations and circumstances where Jesus can use us in powerful ways. I know that the enemy has convinced numbers in this room this morning that theirs is a life of just waiting for it all to get done. But how untrue that is. And this morning, your Holy Spirit is speaking to them and saying, no, you're part of the solution to what's going on right now. You're part of the solution to the, to the injustice. You're part of the solution to the uncaring. You're part of the solution to the, to the stupidity. You're part of the solution to the lack of love in this world. Let us be serious about our commitment to you. And I pray that as we leave here, we will leave with faith intact and faith growing and faith useful and faith ready to share with everybody we come in contact with. Now I pray a blessing, Lord, in this congregation. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the pastor and his family. Pray that you'll give them the rest that they need during this time. Thank you for each person who has not only made this their church home, but made this a source of fellowship in their lives. Oh, we're so thankful for that. And now we go in your precious name, excited to see what you want to do in our lives and with us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. 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 Yeah, one, one thing I didn't mention, if you would like to receive um, every Monday morning via email, uh, Fresh Heart for a New Week, it's a short, you saw it's like a minute reading. Um, there's this place to sign up. Just print your email address and your name and ask the person standing near you that doesn't know you to read your email back because we all think we're very legible and sometimes we're not. So I'd love to, love to share with you and get out of it any time if you want to. But thank you. Thank you very much.